Hey, what's up, everybody? This episode of The Greatest Show on Dirt is brought to you by Hood Hat. Listen, you can check out their hats at hoodhat.com or Instagram at hoodhatusa. And if you listen to the podcast, you know how much I love Hood Hat. You know, their motto is never leave it behind. It's just super nostalgic brand. You know, Max, the guy that makes them, his, he makes the hats in New York, man. So it's all a local situation. You know, his office is out west in LA, so he designs the hats out there, but his manufacturing facility is in New York. So they're locally made. You know, they're made here in the U.S. Top quality merino wool. The color absolutely pops on these hats. And with what the brand stands for, you know, the motto, never leave it behind. It's just a super nostalgic brand. You, He's got a hat customization tool so you can get custom hats built. You know, like I played ball, Mustang ball at Ray Fossey Park in Marion, Illinois. If I want to get Ray Fossey Park on a hat, I could do it. And the script, sports specialties writing, feel like it's 1990 again. I got my starter jacket and my dino wear with front and back pegs. Like they're... It's just a really good brand. Max is a sweetheart of a guy in the quality of the hats. It, it's just legit, man. They're snapback hats, great color. You can get really anything you want on a hat, but the hats that he has available are also really cool as well. You know, I've got the the Jack Murphy Stadium hat. I've got the Riverfront hat for the Cincinnati Reds, Three Rivers for the Pittsburgh Pirates. I got the Mets hat that says Queens Flushing on it. I mean, they're just phenomenal hats. So check them out. Uh, Hood Hat USA on Instagram or go to hoodhat.com and you'll you'll love the hats. Definitely check them out. And now let's get to the show. Hey, what's up, everybody? Greatest show on dirt coming to you live. From the Sweet Bee Studios, the world-renowned, the world headquarters, Sweet Bee Studios. The technology in here is somewhere between CNN and Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> I'm your host, Quentin, a.k.a. Q-Dog, a.k.a. the Pop-Tart King of the South, a.k.a. Deer Salami and Saltines, Air Fryers and Pizza Rolls, Fish Sticks and Miracle Whip. You better believe it. Listen, <laughs> when I did my last podcast episode, which now it's been about five or six weeks, I uh, I missed recording, but the last episode that I did when I started off the podcast, I started ranting on snack foods that I enjoy, you know, because I somehow called myself the Pop-Tart King of the South because I guess I had one podcast episode where I was going on about the benefits of microwaving a Pop-Tart versus toasting the Pop-Tart, and I eat a lot of Pop-Tarts, so I just went with it, right? It sounded great, you know, sort of like on Back to the Future, where Doc Brown falls off the toilet and he invents the flux capacitor. Well, I'm like that with my love of Pop-Tarts and general snack foods. And so now I just figured, well, I could just rant off at the beginning of every episode my favorite snacks, you know, like a rapper does when, you know, it's about like cars and jewelry and stuff like that. But, you know, I'm more of like a fish stick miracle whip type of guy, you know, so that way, you know, who I am, you know, I, I'm a guy you can trust, you know, I'm, I'm a guy that eats Miracle Whip sandwiches and loves to push mow a yard, and so that right there should tell you that you can trust me, you know, I'm not a pretentious dude, and I think, you know, you need to, you can really tell a lot about a person by the foods that they eat, you know, like, for example, let me think, like, what's a really, really fancy food, like caviar or oysters, you know, like oysters, a, a person could eat oysters or a, por- a person could eat Vienna sausages. Now, if you were to listen to a baseball podcast, 
like you're doing now, and I told you that I preferred Vienna sausages over oysters, you'll probably trust me a little more. But if I tell you that I love Grey Poupon, you know, that's not great. But if I tell you I love a good tartar sauce with my fish sticks, you might be more inclined to say, well, I'll listen to that fucking guy. Like, what's he got to say about baseball, you know? And it's, it's like, yeah, let's get it. I'm going to try not to cuss. I need to cuss less. But anyway, let's, um, geez, it's been... Gosh, six weeks, I think, since I've been on the podcast. Man, I'm really happy to be back on here recording again. I'm awful. I'm an awful person when it comes to time management because basically, like, every day, like, I'll work from 9 to 5, right? I'm a copywriter, so I write words for a uh, an audio-video company. And then in the evening when I'm hanging out with my daughter, it's sort of like all I want to do, you know, is just hang out with her because she's getting to the point where, I mean, she's a she'll be 22, she'll be two years old. I was going to say 22 months, but she'll be two in January. So she's a big kid and she's talking a bunch. She says the wildest stuff and she's just the sweetest. And those are the things that like I sort of, you know, I'm having so much fun doing it. And, you know, like the times time goes by so fast. It's like this kid was born yesterday and now here she is like nearly two years old. She says so much. She's literally a sponge. She said, and this is the last time I'll cuss on today's podcast, but she said, oh shit, in Target the other day when she dropped something, and my initial thought was, her mom is going to kill me if she repeats this again, you know? And you really do. Like, it's so cliche to say, like, kids are sponges and all that stuff, but it's, they are because they're learning, and that's one of the things that is so sweet. You know, if you don't have kids, I won't bore you with these details for very long, But if you do, or even if you've had like nieces and nephews that you've watched grow up, it's one of the sweetest things to just watch this little kid learn things and get life, you know? Like, I think it things that like my daughter couldn't do when she was young. Like, I remember the first time she crawled up the stairs and she was so little, I was nervous for her. So I like walked behind her the whole time just waiting for her to fall down. And she didn't, you know, but now she just walks up the stairs. She damn near runs up the stairs and she's a little pack rat too. She loves to carry everything she can get in her hands. It's what she wants to do. Like she'll have, like, she's got a couple, she's got an elephant doll and what is it? An elephant, a rabbit and a little pup, a puppy dog stuffed animal that she'll sleep with. And she has to carry those with her at all times, plus her lunchbox And then she'll want to carry like my pocket knife. She'll want to carry her sippy cup, like all of these things. It's she has to have everything with her at all times. And it's sort of that's sort of like me a little bit, too. You know, if you were to look at my podcast studio now, I'm a pretty big pack rat. And I know the second she's old enough, she's going to come in here and just start swiping stuff and pack ratting it around. And I don't really mind it. You know, it's it's really, really fun to watch them grow up. And it so much reminds me of being a kid, too, you know, and you know, looking at the things my parents did for me and not even things like around baseball, but like, like my old man used to help me with my math homework when I, from the time I was such a little kid, you know, and a lot of it was probably because, you know, it's, it's really fun to watch kids learn stuff. And so it's just been a blast, but I need to try to record this. Like, geez, if I could do a podcast every other week, you know, I think that would be pretty fun. It's just hard to set aside the time. But either way, I'm on. And, um, geez, what's happened, man? Went trick-or-treating last week. Or, geez, was that two weeks ago now? If today's the 10th, trick-or-treating was a blast, dude. Especially since my daughter's, like, about to be two. And so that was a pretty good pretty good time. You know, she can't eat a ton 
of the candy, which is okay because I can eat a ton of the candy. So that was really fun. We didn't do any vandalizing. You know, I figure I'd better wait till my daughter is four or five years old before we start to get in some heavy smashing mailboxes, TPing houses and things like that. You know what I mean? Plus she's a minor, so they'll go light on her. So I feel like we should really get her involved now. And, but yeah, we went trick-or-treating. And listen to this. One of the things I noticed, my daughter, first of all, she was Wednesday Adams. Loved it, man. Loved trick-or-treating. And she's not afraid of anything, which sort of makes me nervous, but then makes me happy at the same time. There was this, by our house, these people, kid. it was like eight feet tall, and it was the Grim Reaper talking in a demonic voice. And so we would walk by it probably a couple times a week because it was just a block over. And my daughter, she loved loves to look at, you know, outdoor decorations, like Halloween decorations she loved. She's going to love Christmas coming up. But every time we would walk by this house, this eight-foot Grim Reaper starts talking in this demonic voice, and my daughter's just looking up at it, smiling. And I'm like, holy crap, this is like some omen stuff. Like, are you Damien? Like, what's happening here? Are you the daughter of Satan? And you're not really my child. Because she just like, I thought she was going to give the thing a hug at some point. And, like, part of me doesn't know if, like, my daughter is just a sweetheart of a kid who loves everyone or if she's from the other side, you know, because I've seen her tantrums and they elevate every week. And I'm like, damn, I don't know what's happening right now. Like, do I need to call a Catholic priest or, like, is everything good here? Like, do I need to sleep with one eye open? If I levitate off my bed in the middle of the night, I'm calling somebody. I'm going to go get a pack of cigarettes and I'm never coming home. I'm scared out of my mind. But trick-or-treating was a blast. But one of the things I noticed is parents, we live in a pretty big neighborhood, and most of the houses hand out candy, which is awesome because we came back with so much candy after we went trick-or-treating and put my daughter to bed. I think my wife and I watched Halloween 1 and 2 and ate so much candy. Like I was about to have to call that guy to get some diabetes testing supplies because I knew for sure something was wrong with me, you know, but I love a good Kit Kat. What can I say? That's my thing. Like a Kit Kat probably isn't my favorite candy, but it's my favorite Halloween candy. And I don't know why Kit Kats and Fun Dips, but nobody was handing out Fun Dip and that pissed me off, right? I wasn't happy about that, but listen to this. So parents, because the neighborhood was so big or for whatever reason, Parents were taking their kids trick-or-treating, and they had golf carts, and they were cruising the neighborhood in golf carts, taking their kids trick-or-treating. And listen, this isn't me. I'm not about to get in a rant saying, oh, today's kids don't know shit or whatever. I saw the parents taking their kids around on the golf cart, and I got pissed off. I wanted to call my mom and yell at her because we didn't have any of that shit, man. Like, kids today, they got it great, and they should absolutely embrace it. Like, if my daughter's learning to ride a bike, am I going to put a helmet on her? Absolutely. I don't know how much head trauma I received as a child from bike wrecks, fucking flipping the three-wheeler in the neighborhood. <laughs> like, three-wheelers were death traps. <laughs> I told that story a few episodes ago. Yeah, when we moved, so we, I, so we originally had a double wide out in the country on some land that was in the family. And when I turned four years old, we moved into town. So we got rid of the double wide. My grandpa, my mom's dad, had a house and a piece of land because he had a bunch of rental houses. And he sold it to my parents for really cheap. So they got rid of the double wide. 
got rid of the land and we moved into town. <laughs> but we brought the three-wheeler with us so we would rip ass on that motherfucker. Dang, I'm going to stop cussing. <laughs> we would fly on that sucker through the neighborhood. I can't tell you how many times I rolled and flipped the three-wheeler just ramping through ditches and all that stuff. I didn't wear a helmet. So yeah, I don't know the head trauma that I have, you know, but I don't have any like CTE symptoms. You know, I'm not depressed or violent. I'm just hungry all the time. You know what I mean? So like, I wonder if my head trauma just makes me want to eat cereal and pop tarts all the time and Vienna sausages. I don't really know. But yeah, so like today's kids, they've got it great. Like embrace the helmet, right? You don't want the head injuries, you know? And if your parents are going to take you trick-or-treating on a golf cart, by all means, get that because I'm not complaining about it. But when I, oh boy, here it comes, man. The grumpy old 38-year-old Quentin McCreed's about to go on about when I was a kid. But listen, okay, I had a brother that was four years older than me. And I had a sister that was four years younger than me. So we're spaced out pretty good. So when my brother is 11, I'm seven. He's a lot taller and faster than me. But when I'm seven, my sister's basically three years old at this point. Because really there's only three and a half difference, but three and a half years difference between us. We would trick or treat through the neighborhood. Kids now, they start at four, they're done at six. They don't even have to trick or treat in the dark. Okay. When we were kids, Unsolved Mysteries was real shit. Kids were getting kidnapped. We'd have started trick-or-treating until like 6 p.m. and we would go till 10. But on top of that, we're in southern Illinois. So when October comes around, it is freezing cold and really windy. And so us as kids, trick-or-treating was basically real-life Oregon Trail shit. We were putting, <laughs> we were sacrificing our lives. We were putting our lives on the line for a Kit Kat, for Fun Dip, for Pixie Sticks, right? Because the whole time trick-or-treating, it's freezing, it's windy. I'm trying to keep up with my brother who's four years older than me. I don't know if I'm going to make it to the next house. I don't know physically if I could do it. There's a big ditch. I might fall in, but God help my sister back there who's a solid seven years younger than my brother, who we're all following. My mom's out smoking fucking parliaments and talking to friends. We don't know where she's at. And my poor sister's back there about a block down. She might get picked up. She might be on Unsolved Mysteries in a few weeks. I don't know if she's going to live. Is the poor thing going to get pneumonia or bronchitis? I don't know. But if I fall in a ditch and she makes it, I pray to God that her little arms are strong enough to pull me out. This is some serious shit, man. Like, I don't know. I literally don't know how I'm alive. Like my mom would let me drive the car to go get her cigarettes because she knew the lady at the gas station. I had to cross a main road. Listen, kids, when they were 12 and 13, they weren't allowed to cross their bikes across one main road. I had friends who were like, no, I can't ride my bike that far. I can't cross the main road. And I'd be like, well, fuck, whatever. Don't just do it anyway. But my mom would let me cross the main road in her Pontiac Grand Prix to go buy parliaments and bring them back for her. What a mom. And I loved it because I loved to drive the car. And so, yeah, we were pretty, it was the wild, wild west when we were kids, you know? And when I saw that fucking golf cart, I got jealous, man, because they just had it easy, you know? Like, and then now, like, kids are coming home and they'll, like, split up their candy and separate it and organize it. Yo, we will come home at 10 p.m. and just be like, we just need to go to bed, you know? We would sit by, like, the wood-burning stove. We had a wood-burning stove in the living room. We're, like, trying to get warm, like, you know, the 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 homeless people in Chicago. that You watch, like, old 80s movies. 
and you got people in the city of Chicago and they're just, you know, around like a trash can that's on fire and it just burns for hours on end. Like that was us after trick or treating. We would just get by our wood burning oven, which was in the living room and just try to warm up. And my mom would be like, do you guys like your candy? And we're just like, oh, I don't fucking know. I'm so cold. You know, like we're just trying to survive. And then my dad's over in the corner like, you guys don't feel good. Have you used the stool today? Because that's, listen, that's the thing. <laughs> listen to this shit. And I swear at some point in this podcast, I'll talk about baseball. I got good topics. But listen to this. When we were kids and anytime we were sick, my dad, who you know, I talked about my dad a little bit on the podcast. So you know that he grew up with an outhouse in the yard that his tonsils dissolved in his mouth because he was afraid to tell his dad that it hurt. My old man, when he was like 10 years old, he coughed up blood for three weeks because his tonsils were dissolving in his mouth. Because he was afraid to tell his dad that he was coughing up blood. My dad verbatim lives by this motto. And he said this is how they lived growing up. When my dad was a kid, he said, you either got better or you died. First time my dad told me that, and he's not laughing. He's like, that's how that shit is. So anytime we were sick as kids, my dad would look at us and say, have you used the stool today? And we'd be like, what? Because my dad is so country, he would call the toilet the stool. <laughs> and so anytime we were sick, my dad would say, have you used the stool today? But he would do it in his country voice, like, you stool today? And he's basically asking us if you've taken a shit today. Like, that's just going to be the problem solver for everything, you know? Like, I'm done trick-or-treating. I've got like 102 fever. I'm sick. I'm freezing my ass off by the wood burning stove or any time we were sick. And it's like, oh, well, Quentin's got 102 temperature. Hey, son, you take a shit today? <laughs> because that's somehow going to fix my problem. Yeah, dad, I got 102 fever. I never thought to take a shit. Let me go hunker down and it'll go away. You know, that was just his problem for everything because my dad doesn't do doctors, doesn't do hospitals. You know, he worked construction, so if he put a nail in his hand, he's going to rip it out and super glue and duct tape over it. Like, that's just in his nature, which really, there's a lot of logic behind that. Like, you know, if I if I get into like a lot of Taco Bell or McDonald's, you know, if, if I go two for two on the fish fillets and my stomach hurts a little bit and I don't feel good, I know that as soon as I take a shit that I'm going to feel better because I'm addicted to McDonald's fish fillets, addicted to them. The fish fillet is basically the Dave Parker of fast food. Where Dave Parker should be in the Hall of Fame, the fish fillet is highly underrated and does not get the approval, the praise that it should. And so I'm all in on him. But if, if I eat two fish fillets, my stomach's going to hurt. And I know if I take a shit, as soon as I do, I'm going to feel better. So my dad, it was probably right all those years, you know, and I could... I could just see my parents now. Like, you know, anytime my daughter's sick, you know, my wife and I would talk about it. We're like, hey, we'll give her a little bit of Motrin. She'll sleep or whatever, right? And I can, I can just see my parents talking about a sick kid and my mom being like, yeah, I guess I'll go get him some bubblegum medicine or some Pepto. And then my dad looking at my mom saying, well, I'll tell you what, that, that bubblegum medicine might work pretty good, but, you know, he needs to take a shit. And if, it, and if he ain't taking a shit today, you know, maybe we ought to try to get him to take a shit. And then my mom just being like, what? You know, like, who are you, man? And <laughs> dude, just a tough, tough son of a bitch, man. That's what he was. Okay, let's get, I know I got some baseball topics. So here's what trick-or-treating vandal is a lot of stuff I was going to talk about, but I've already talked for 17 minutes. Okay, so I got a couple 
baseball topics here. I'm going to talk about Ray Fossey. Ray Fossey passed away about a month ago, and he was the catcher for the Oakland Athletics, won a couple World Series with them, and he was a TV and radio play-by-play guy for the Athletics. Hell of a gritty dude, and the reason why I want to talk about Ray Fossey so much is because not a lot of people know a lot about Ray Fossey outside of his collision with Pete Rose. I'm going to talk about Dave Parker and his infamous mask, Friday the 13th Jason mask, and then I'm going to go over the, hold on, what did I call this next topic? Today's gritty players. So I've got a list of one, two, three, four, five, seven players that play today's game that remind me of players from, you know, the 80s and the 90s and even the 70s, right? Today's gritty ballplayers. I made a list of that too because one of the things I love to do and I've sort of talked about a little bit on the past couple podcasts, was finding bright spots in today's games because there are a lot of folks, myself included, that'll look at today's game and it's a far cry from what we grew up on and it's sort of like, oh man, I don't like that, you know? But I've made it a point to try to find, you know, hidden gems in today's game, really good things about today's game that I can appreciate. And what I'm finding is, there are really good things about today's game that we're going to look at back on 20 years from now and say, hey, that was a good time of baseball. But it's really hard to do because with nostalgia, you know, we always think the best stuff was stuff that we've already been through because we develop nostalgic feelings for it. So what I've been trying to do is just that, trying to pinpoint, you know, really good things in today's game that I think we can all appreciate. So that's baseball-wise what we're going to talk about. I'm going to pause this for a second because I can't breathe and then we will get into the baseball stuff. All right, our first baseball story is the Dave Parker baseball story. Now, there's a picture of Dave Parker that's on the internet. It's really popular, and it's the picture of Dave Parker in a Jason Voorhees Friday the 13th hockey goalie mask where he looks like an absolute badass. Now, if you're like me, you saw that picture for years and just assumed that, well, didn't really know what the hell it was, but knew it was a really cool picture. Well, as it turns out, there's a really cool story behind that hockey mask picture. So here's what we got. 1978. That's Dave Parker's MVP season. The season before the We Are Family Pittsburgh Pirates won the World Series. Now, what happened in 78 is the Mets had a catcher. His name was John Stearns. And him and Big Dave Parker, they got in a home plate collision. Now, to get in a home plate collision with Dave Parker, who's 6'5", 250, God bless John Stearns. I don't know how many games he missed, but Dave Parker missed about two weeks because he fractured his jaw and broke his cheekbone. Now, Dave wanted to play ASAP. The Pirates trainer said that if Dave Parker had his way, he would have missed like four days, which I assume is the amount of time it would take for the swelling to go down enough to where he could, I don't know, operate as a human being, maybe put on a helmet because his jaw wasn't so fat, and eat some food so he wasn't so tired, you know? Like, that was just probably as soon as he could have came back without just being in just a crazy amount of pain. You know, to fracture your jaw in a ch- and fracture a cheekbone, that's some serious stuff. I mean, his face just had to be swollen and huge, you know? And But Dave Parker, anyway, he goes to the trainer and he's like, listen, you got to figure this out because I'm not going to miss the rest of this season, right? This is the MVP in 1978, and this is during his MVP season that he goes to the Pirate trainer and says, you got to fix it up, man. Like, I got to play. You know, I'm not going to not play. So the trainer is just sort of like, well, let me come up with some ideas. You know, I'm in Pittsburgh. 
And, you know, they got a hockey team. I guess they saw a hockey team in 78. I'm not too sure when the Penguins came to town. But they also, you know, were at, I think, Three Rivers at this point. So they shared a stadium with the Pittsburgh Steelers as well. So he's like, okay, like I got people I can talk to. So this uh, trainer for the Pittsburgh Pirates, he comes back with a hockey goalie mask because he's like, hey, listen, I think this would be pretty cool. And Dave looked at the hockey goalie mask and he's like, hell yeah, man, that thing looks scary as shit. So Dave had the, Dave and the trainer, they painted the mask. You can't see this from a picture, but the hockey mask that Dave Parker wore Half of it was yellow and half of it was black, which had to have been enough to send any major league pitcher and do a complete tailspin, a whirlwind, you know, to the point where they're thinking about joining a cult because they just need peace of mind in their life because they feel like they have no other options. Like, I can't throw to a guy who's 6'5", 250, that looks like he's about to rip my heart out like Kano from Mortal Kombat. But that's what they did. So... They they, they they get the mask finished. They paint it half black, half yellow. Looks very menacing with this huge guy that's wearing it. And on top of that, you got the Pittsburgh Pirates uniforms, which are pretty badass, you know? If, you know, sometimes they got the black and the yellow unis on, which look completely scary. But then even if they have the home whites with the pinstripes, like the font of the Pirates, like a Pirates uni looks like a uniform that a serial killer might wear. Like if Michael Myers or Jason Voorhees, you know, just happened to be near a baseball stadium or like, you know, had an East Bay catalog in their hand, they probably would have ordered a Pittsburgh Pirates uni because they look, they look like a uni that someone would just kick your ass in, you know? And so that's what they do, man. So Dave Parker comes back. He's ready to wear the hockey mask. Now, the game that Dave comes back, he's uh, he's going to play off the bench. And batting practice before the game Dave Parker is hitting scuds in the third tier of Three River Stadium. He's launching baseballs, and he's like, dude, this hockey mask is where it's at. So he comes up off the bench in the 11th inning, and this fucking guy walks out of the dugout in the now, in the Jason Voorhees hockey mask. Now, at this point, 78, Jason wasn't even a movie, but it didn't have to be a movie because he was menacing. You know, people weren't looking at Dave Parker, and they were like, oh, my God. This guy looks like Jason Voorhees, you know what I mean? I would imagine when the Friday the 13th movies came out, people were like, oh my God, Jason Voorhees looks like Dave Parker. I'm fucking terrified. And so he comes out in the 11th to take his pinch hitting at bat. Pitcher intentionally walks him, doesn't think twice about it. Dave comes out of the dugout. That poor pitcher goes, uh, fuck that. So he intentionally walks him. Doesn't even think twice about it. So Dave Parker's taking his lead at first base. And there's also a picture of this too. I believe they were playing the Padres on this game. And whoever's playing first base for the Padres, you could see Dave Parker behind him with the two-tone mask on taking his lead like he's about to slash his throat. Like this first baseman's life may end. I imagine he's saying prayers too, hoping that the underwear that he's wearing will hold everything in. I don't really know. Absolutely terrifying. But the next day... It was sort of like Dave was taking batting practice again, and he realized some of the pitches he couldn't see. You know, like if it was an off-speed big break or something like that, he just had a hard time seeing the pitch with the hockey mask on because, well, it's a hockey mask. You know, if you want to stab someone to death, good. If you want to hit a double in the gap off a breaking pitch, it's probably not the best thing to wear. So he goes back to the trainer, and he's like, can you hook me up, man? Like, I just certain pitches I can't see. So the trainer then goes to talk to some dudes from the Steelers, some of the Steelers training, and they basically give Dave 
a modified football helmet for him to play baseball with. And it's where it's at because Dave can see, he can see at his peripherals, he, he can hit well in it. And so that's what they do. So they get the mask on and he's wearing the football helmet for pretty much the rest of the season. But <laughs> so listen to this though. So one game they're playing the Reds and Joe Morgan plays second base and Joe sees Dave with that mask on and he goes to the umpire and he says, listen, like that mask, like I don't want Dave Parker wearing that mask sliding hard into second. This is what he tells the umpire. He goes, listen, ump, Dave Parker plays the game hard. And if he comes in sliding into second with that mask, like he's bound to just, you know, tear up my knee. He's going to hurt me. So I don't want him to wear it. So he throws a fit to the ump. And then the ump goes back to Dave and says, listen, Dave, Joe, Joe doesn't want you to wear the mask when you're on the bases because he's worried you're going to hurt him. And Dave's like this motherfucker. He's like, okay, whatever. So <laughs> Dave gets on, Dave gets a hit, gets on first base and he wore the football helmet during the at bat. But when he gets on base, he puts on a normal baseball helmet. And he looks down at Joe Morgan and he knows, I don't know if Joe knows that he knows, but Dave knows that Joe narked on him about the helmet, right? So <laughs> whoever's batting next, I don't remember who it was. He, um, he gets it. He hits it to the shortstop. It's an infield play. So Dave's going into second. Dave goes into second hard. And at this point, like it could be a hard play. Or he could be mad at Joe. Nobody really knows. But Dave goes into second really hard. Joe gets pissed. Joe's yelling at the ump. He goes, did you see what Dave did? Dave tried to run me down. He tried to kill me in the base path. And the ump's like, whatever. You know, Dave was out. But Dave, you know, they couldn't turn the double play because of Dave's hard play. <laughs> but Joe's adamant that Dave tried to kill him on this play. He was, he told the ump, he said, dude, Dave came at me on this play. Ump didn't want to hear it, man, because baseball in the 70s, it was basically like if you don't have any bones popping out of your body and you don't think you're going to bleed out, then just shut up and keep playing. <laughs> That's how they functioned. So <laughs> after the game, they talked to Dave Parker and they asked him about the play. I guess like the media, you know, they asked him about the play. And Dave goes, no, no, I tried to kill Joe. That's absolutely what I did because he narked me out on the play. So I 1 million percent tried to take Joe out on that play. <laughs> and it was just so like matter of fact, he's like, no, I tried to kill him. That's how it was. So Joe was right the whole time because he's like, yo, this guy's going to try. He tried to kill me at second. And Dave goes, yep, that's exactly what I did. But Dave Parker still went on to win the MVP that year with a broken jaw and cheekbone. He played in, geez, 148 games because he missed, I think, like two weeks for, you know, his jaw and his cheekbone. Like I said, probably for the swelling to go down. But then at that point, they had to find a mask that worked really well. But it's a hell of a season, man. Some things I didn't really realize in 1978 is even especially early on in Dave's career because Dave was a guy that... He played football, I believe, in high school and maybe part of college. And so he had a really bad knee injury while I think he was still in high school. You know, so as he got older and heavier, you know, his knees didn't treat him really well. But when he was young, I mean, we all know the arm that Dave Parker had. Like, Dave Parker had a missile of an arm. He's throwing scuds from the outfield, just getting guys out at will, you know. And we know that Dave Parker could hit some home runs and won two batting titles. But look at this, like, in early in Dave's career, like, even specifically to look at that 1978 season, he had 30 home runs, hit 32 doubles, also had 12 triples 
and 20 stolen bases. Listen, when Dave Parker was good and his knees were still good, listen, this wasn't a guy that was just a power hitter and just had a hell of an arm. He could run 12 triples with 30 home runs and 20 steals. That is a hell of a season. Ended up batting 334. That was his second consecutive um, batting title. Dude, slugged 585. Like, I mean, it was the best season he had in his career. 30 bombs, 117 ribbies. 57 walks to 92 strikeouts. That's the thing about Parker, too, man, being such a good hitter because people love, dude, if you talk to anybody and they're like, hey, who do you think is getting robbed of the Hall of Fame? Dave Parker is always a top choice. And I've talked about Parker on this podcast, man, his leadership abilities and things like that. And that that's a big reason why he should be in the Hall of Fame. But if you look at his numbers, like, listen, I know he didn't have 3,000 hits. He didn't have 400 home runs. But listen, this guy could play ball. And he was a ball player. You know, this wasn't a one-sided guy who was just a bat, was a little heavy or whatever. Because Barker was always a bigger guy. Even in 78, he looked like a bigger guy. But, yo, he was sneaky fast. But, I, dude, that Dave Parker mask story, I just can't believe he went on to win the MVP, man. But, Dude, he, I love stories like that about old baseball players. They were just gritty, man. They could be in pain and hurt, and they're still like, hey, listen, it's time to play ball. Like, we got to go, you know? And, yo, props to Parker, man. But that's one of the things that I didn't fully realize about Dave is just how fast he was. Triples, doubles, stolen bases. Dude, he could play ball. All right, our next baseball story is Ray Fossey. Ray Fossey, one of the true legends of the game. He's not a Hall of Famer. He doesn't have Hall of Fame stats. But this guy was a phenomenal catcher. He was an upper-tier catcher in Major League Baseball. But before I go into the Ray Fossey story, I'll tell you this. Over the past three or four years, I've watched a decent amount of Oakland Athletics baseball games. And I'm not an Oakland A's fan, you know. I don't I don't dislike him. Let me get that clear. Like, when I say I'm not a fan, like I'm a Cubs fan, right? I'm from Illinois. I'm a Chicago fan. I like to get drunk while my team loses 100 games a year. That's how I roll. But I would tune in to Oakland Athletics games only for Ray Fossey. Ray Fossey called a game like... An announcer would call the game in the 80s. He analyzed the game. He talked about baseball strategy. He would pull you into the game. It didn't matter who the A's were playing, who was winning, who was losing. If you didn't know one single player, you could listen to Ray Fossey call the game and you would get into the game. You would love the game. You would just love to hear his voice and the things that he said because he talked about baseball strategy like in such educated, good, thoughtful terms where like you're like, this guy's smart and he knows baseball and I enjoy it. So if you've never heard Ray Fossey call a game, we're about to be in a big offseason and there's going to be no baseball to watch. Dude, go find any Oakland Athletics game. He started calling games on the TV. He would he would call games mostly on television, but he would call some radio games too. So, and he started calling games for the A's in 1986. So, if you find a game from 1986 to the time he retired, which was August of this year, and he's not on it, j- just pick a different game because he might have called the radio that day. I'm not sure. But you'll just enjoy it. And like I said, it doesn't matter if the A's are playing the Angels or the Rangers and both teams suck or whatever and you don't like any of them. Do yourself the favor and just listen and enjoy it because it is so much damn fun. Now, Listen, one of the things, Ray Fossey, first and foremost, he's from my hometown where I, I shouldn't say that. I'm from Ray Fossey's hometown of Marion, Illinois. So growing up, Ray Fossey was just this larger than life guy because he was from 
The town I lived in, like the Little League Park that I used to play ball at was Ray Fossey Park. Mustang ball, pony, bronco, t-ball. Like, that was it, man. So, like, growing up, you know, my brother had a 1976 Topps Ray Fossey card autographed. And it was, like, to me, the holy grail of cards. Like, my brother kept it on the top shelf so I couldn't reach it, right? He didn't want me touching his shit. And it was just like, dude, that's Ray Fossey. Like, wow, you know? And so I always had a sense of pride as well, like listening to, you know, games that Ray Fossey calls because I'm like, that's someone where I'm from that like made it, man. Like he made it happen in a very impactful way. And that's one of the reasons also why I'm excited to talk about Ray Fossey because so many people only know Ray Fossey from the Pete Rose All-Star Game Collision, which was, shit, I don't even remember what year that was. It might have been in 76. I'm not, I'm not sure. No, it would have been before then. I'll be able to maybe get you the date on it. I'm not too sure when it was. But either way, it's the All-Star Game. If you got to search it, just search Ray Fossey Pete Rose on YouTube. And you can see the collision if you haven't seen it. But that's what Ray Fossey's most known for. And there's so many cool things about Ray Fossey. Like, first and foremost, this guy was a gritty, gritty ass catcher, right? So, I mean, just tough as nails. That All-Star Game... All right, Ray Fossey, it's an in extra innings, and Ray Fossey took a throw from, I believe, Amos Otis, who was playing left field, and Pete Rose is running from second. Now, this all-star game is at Riverfront, so Pete's the hometown guy. His dad's in the stance. Pete's barreling in hard. Now, if you look at the play, Pete Rose has been dogged for this play forever because Ray was a young, up-and-coming rookie who was having a hell of a season, right? He was having a phenomenal season. He was... You know, on par to be, he was predicted to be just an excellent catcher. And I believe he still was, but he had residual pain and injuries from this play. But back to the play. So as Amos throws the ball, he throws the ball up the third baseline. So he misses home plate. So Pete's going to get the ball. Pete doesn't even catch the ball. Or excuse me, <laughs> Amos throws the ball up the third baseline. So Ray has got to go get the ball. But Ray doesn't even get a chance to get the ball because as he's anticipating the ball, Pete runs into him. Now, Ray is in the base path. There is no path to home play. And you can see on the replay, it looks like Pete is about to slide head first. And so he like he's hunkering down like he's about to slide head first. And then he knows he can't. So he gets up and then runs right into Ray Fossey, hits Ray Fossey in his shoulder. I believe it was his left shoulder. And huge collision. Now, what happened is after that collision, Pete Rose missed three games. Ray Fossey didn't miss a single game. And here's why that's impressive. So after the game, they go through the x-rays. They're looking at Ray because Ray's like, yo, this shit hurts. They get the x-rays and all the x-rays are negative. There's no damage that they can see. But it turns out there was there was damage, but they didn't discover it till the next year because Ray was so swollen up. It didn't show on the x-ray, right? Keep in mind, we're talking, this is the 70s. So the technology wasn't there. And so Ray leaves and like, he can't lift his arm up, right? But he's not going to say anything to anybody. Like he's going to gut it out and continue to play. Like years later when Ray was asked about it, he goes, listen, my, my, there were no bones popping out of my shoulder, no bones popping out of my body. So I figured I was fine because back then in the 70s, we used to, you know, dog guys who, you know, would act like they were hurt and not play, you know, like it was a sense of pride to continue to play through the pain. And Ray Fossey even said that to the day he passed that, you know, he took a lot of pride in his ability to continue to play and go on that field 
while he was in such pain. And I think that's one of the most amazing things about sports is to watch a player continue to push themselves while normal folks like me would just take it to the house and say, fuck it, man. I'm going to take a bunch of Tylenol and, you know, eat a box of oatmeal cream pies, right? Like, I'll see you next spring. But, you know, Ray, that's that's what set him apart, man. Like, you know, when you talk about, you know, important positions in the game of baseball, catcher is one of them that's been downplayed, I think, in recent years because now it's sort of just like, with a catcher, you just sort of stick anyone back there, I guess. There's not a – I shouldn't say that, but like, I don't know if there are any really great catchers in today's game like there used to be. And that could be because it's really difficult to be a catcher. And if you're a really good athlete, they would soon rather have you not be a catcher, like Craig Biggio getting moved to second because he could hit and he was so fast and all of that. But, you know, you had guys, you know, like when I grew up, you had like Pudge Rodriguez, Mike Piazza, Benito Santiago. There were a lot of really, really good catchers. But in today's game, I feel like you have Yachty Molina, JT Real Muto, and those seemingly might be the only two really elite catchers in the game now that Buster Posey's retired. I just don't know. And I don't even know if I'm right about that. But the catching position is so important and doesn't get enough value in today's game. You know, it's sort of just like, yeah, just throw somebody back there who can swing a bat, like whatever, and hit 200, let's go. But, I mean, the, you know, take a guy like Yadi Molina. Like, that's who Ray Fossey reminds me of. If we want a current comp of a player that plays now, it's Yadi Molina. Because you look at his stats, and Yadi Molina doesn't have stats that sort of jump out at you. You know, if you look at his advanced stats, he's about a league average hitter for his whole entire career. But his ability, Yadi Molina's ability to call a game helps his team in ways that you just can't measure. And that's how Ray Fossey was. Now, let me tie off on the injury. So, Oh, he comes back and plays, like I said, Ray didn't miss any games from the collision. So the first game he comes back, he's playing for the Cleveland Indians, and the manager is a guy named Alvin Dark, and he knows Ray's a tough dude. And so Alvin sends Ray out there to catch. Now, at this point, Ray cannot lift his left arm. He can, I should say, not lift it. Ray can barely lift his left arm to catch the ball. He can barely move it from left to right. Like, he is in pain. And Alvin Dark sort of knows that. So Alvin is in the dugout waiting for Ray to tell him that he can't play and he's too hurt, right? Because he's not going to go get his guy, but he's like, listen, if he's hurt, he'll tell me. And Ray is catching the game and Ray's like, well, I'm not saying I'm hurt at all. I'm not saying shit. There are no bones popping out of this body. But if Alvin asks me if I'm hurt, I'll probably tell him I'm hurt. So that's what you have right here. The very next game after the All-Star break, Alvin is in the dugout waiting for Ray to tell him that he's hurt. Ray's in the dugout waiting for Alvin to ask him if he's hurt, but meanwhile, neither guy is going to say shit. So Ray finishes out the whole damn season with the exception of a little bit of time because he broke his finger, right? And when the season's over, because what had happened, oh, I never even said, the actual injuries for Ray Fossey, it was like a fractured shoulder and... Ray Fossey's shoulder from the collision was fractured and separated. So he played the rest of that season with a fractured and separated shoulder and only missed time because he broke a finger on his throwing hand and like just literally couldn't grip the ball to throw. So they they took him out. And the season, I never said this either, the season that the collision happened would have been 
at the 1970 the 1970 All-Star game. So in 1970, he still played 120 games, so he must have missed a pretty decent chunk from his finger. But he played the rest of the time that he played when he, before he broke his finger with a fractured and separated shoulder. Didn't miss one damn game. Didn't tell anyone he was hurt, kept going. And that was the thing. Ray was really prideful in that. And I admire that. You know, as pro athletes, like I said earlier, it's really fun to see an athlete, you know, push themselves to, you know, that point of being uncomfortable. And it's, it's really inspiring to see a human being, you know, push themselves to that limit, you know, that breaking point, whether it's Kurt Schilling in the bloody sock or whatever, you know, I think that stuff is really impressive. Michael Jordan flu game, you know, so be it. But so that's why I'm at with the Ray Fossey thing. So in the 1970 offseason, still with his fracture and separated shoulder, he goes to play winter ball. <laughs> you know, does, literally doesn't stop playing ball. Comes back in 71, and he's like, man, my shoulder still hurts a little bit. They do another x-ray on it, and swelling's down. So they can tell that Ray had a fractured and separated shoulder, but it already healed. And it healed incorrectly because it wasn't treated and that's why the rest of his career was affected because it healed wrong. He was in pain every damn day that he played ball. That's, that's just the way it was. You know, he just hurt. He had he had five knee surgeries. Both of his shoulders were crap, including the left one really bad. He had a neck problem that he hurt his neck in a fight in the Oakland A's dugout. Reggie, Reggie Jackson was fighting somebody and Ray got in the middle of it and messed up his neck. But he never told anyone. Didn't take a day off. He always continued to play, you know. He caught all nine innings the the day after the All-Star game with a fracture and separated shoulder. Like, that stuff is super impressive to me, you know. But what I also wanted to get into is a couple minutes ago where I made the Yachty Molina comparison about the intangibles of the catcher, being able to call a game, being able to elevate the performance of your pitchers, because that's what Yachty or Molina does. And if you watch baseball now, you can see it. And the reason why I make the Ray Fossey Yachty Molina comparison is because the pitchers that Ray Fossey caught, they absolutely loved him. Gaylord Perry won a Cy Young in 1972 with the Cleveland Indians. He had like 24 wins, a hell of a season. When he got that Cy Young, he told the media, he goes, Listen, you've got to give a lot of credit to Ray Fossey because he was a big part of my success. Gaylord said that he kept pushing me in games when I know I didn't have good stuff. Ray would come out to the dugout. He'd pump me up and tell me to bear down and get the job done. And that was it, man. Like, that's the effect he had on case. Gaylord Perry, 300 wins, Hall of Famer. And he's like, you, Ray Fossey, man, I could not. Gaylord Perry was, I cannot do this without Ray Fossey. Same thing happened with Dennis Eckersley. Dennis Eckersley threw a no-hitter when he was with the Cleveland Indians, when he was a starter. And when the no-hitter was over, he goes, listen, I got to give credit to Ray Fossey. Ray called a hell of a game. He knows what's going on in the game. I only shook him off maybe three times. Dennis Eckersley loved him, man. The pitchers that threw the ball to Ray Fossey, they absolutely loved him. Ray Fossey's first year in Oakland, the Oakland Athletics, I'm not saying this is all because of Ray Fossey, but I know Ray Fossey had a huge, huge influence on it. The Oakland A's in Ray's first year when he got traded from the Indians, um, here, let, let me tell you the years here real quick, because Ray Fossey, the Indians, excuse me, the Athletics won back-to-back-to-back World Series, 72, 73, and 74. Ray didn't get there till 73. 
1973, the Oakland Athletics had four starting pitchers with 20 wins. Ken Holtzman, 21 and 13. Vita Blue, 20 and 9. Catfish Hunter, 21 and 5. I said four 20-game winners. It was three 20-game winners. Ken Holtzman, Vita Blue, Catfish Hunter. Listen, man, they loved throwing to this guy. And that's the thing with the intangibles, man. You know, if you listen to a game that Ray Fossey called and you say, damn, this guy knows his baseball, you bet your ass he did, man, because he had such an influence on this pitching staff. And I'm not here saying that Ray Fossey should be a Hall of Famer, but one of the reasons I was so excited to talk about Ray Fossey is because he's one of those guys. And I didn't see Ray play. Ray's last season was over. Hell, it might have been over before I was born, to be honest with you. Yep, Ray's last season was in 1979. I didn't see him play, but being from the same town, you hear stories, you do a lot of reading, read some interviews, you know, about guys he played with, and it's like, there's not a guy that can say anything bad about Ray Fossey, and there are a lot of guys. There are a lot of guys that that happens with, right? Most guys that play Major League Baseball are pretty good guys, and they're pretty hard workers, but I like Ray Fossey. For the same reason I like Dave Parker with the mask story is you get a guy who's just a hard-working dude. You know, baseball players in Ray Fossey's time, they weren't getting paid millions of dollars, man. These guys, they played with pride. You know, if they were hurt, they kept grinding and they kept going because that meant something to him. You know, to have the respect of the guys that you play with on the baseball field and, you know, to also, you know, have, you know, to give yourself, you know, a personal challenge of continuing to play through it. There's a lot, you know, there's definitely a big sense of accomplishment in that. You know, Michael Jordan used to talk about that, you know, where he would, you know, he would challenge himself and set these goals for himself. And that's a lot of what motivated him, you know, and Ray Fossey's sort of like, you know, that type of guy in that, that same vein, you know, to where, you know, he, he would, you know, accept challenges, you know, that he made to himself and attack them. And, you know, when you got a guy who, you know, it'd be hard to keep going when you're supposed to be, you know, in the same, you know, people would talk about Ray Fossey sort of being cut from the same cloth as Johnny Bench because Johnny Bench was, I think, maybe a year or two ahead of him. And so baseball guys were like, this Ray Fossey guy's going to be amazing. And to lose that talent and to not lose your heart, man, to not lose your positivity, to not lose your love for the game and continue to going, man, I think that's just an awesome thing because he could have easily just you know, shit the bed, been like, I'm done with this, you know, blame his problems on Pete Rose and just cause a stir and a fuss over it. He didn't do any of that. He didn't blame Pete Rose for shit. He didn't blame his problems on anyone. He didn't even think about his problems. He didn't even think about what he had went through as a problem. He used the tools that he had to make the teams that he played for better, and you bet your ass he made those teams better. So cheers to Ray Fossey, man. One of the legends that you may have never heard of, and hopefully you enjoyed that little rundown of Ray Fossey, because damn, man, he's one of the good ones. All right, all right. The last baseball story of today's podcast is gritty players of today. So I made a list of about six guys who I think are pretty gritty, who remind me of old school ball players, right? And here's the list that I got. So the first guy on my list is Nathan Evaldi, pitcher for the Boston Red Sox. Now, this guy is an absolute blast to watch, not just because he throws 100 miles an hour. Not just because he's from Alvin, Texas, which is the home of Nolan Ryan, the Ryan Express, but because he just gives it all and doesn't really give a shit about anything else. And the moment I'm talking about here, what really stapled it for me with Nathan Evaldi was his six innings of relief pitching in the 2018 World Series, Game 3. So this was an extra inning affair that went to, 
I don't know, like the 14th or 15th inning or something like that. So it was the Dodgers against the Red Sox. Now, the Dodgers ended up winning the game on a Max Muncy home run. But it it doesn't matter because this Nathan Avaldi performance in the World Series, to me, is one of the all-time pitching performances, right? It's right up there with Jack Morris, you know, when Tom Glavin pitched eight innings of one-hit ball to win the World Series in 95. Like, you talk about just stellar postseason pitching performances. This was one for the ages, and it doesn't even matter that the Red Sox lost because this loss and Nathan Avaldi's performance really set the tone for that team. And it really embodies what that team was about, you know, and my wife would kill me if she heard me talking about this because she's, uh, you know, Long Island diehard Yankees. But you can't you can't deny what Nathan Evaldi did. So let's get into this right now. So game three of the 2018 World Series, Nathan Evaldi comes in to pitch in relief. Now, this was the third consecutive game that Nathan Evaldi had pitched on two days rest. Now, he was coming off of Tommy John surgery, the second Tommy John surgery of his career. The first Tommy John surgery was his junior year of high school because this guy was throwing absolute heat, you know? But if you're from Alvin, Texas, I mean, Nolan Ryan's the dude, so that's all you want to do is just throw absolute gas, and that's what he did. So he threw six innings of relief. Now, the only reason he threw six innings of relief, only six innings of relief, is because when he came out to throw his seventh inning of relief, Max Muncy hit a walk-off home run off of him. <laughs> and the thing about it is, is I think Nathan Evaldi would have pitched forever. So in the time that Nathan Evaldi in this game was pitching relief, the Dodgers used six pitchers. Nathan Evaldi, he he did it all while the Dodgers used six pitchers. Nathan Evaldi said, listen, my plan was to keep going out there till we came on top. I think he would have pitched forever, sort of like Jack Morris in the 91 World Series. He just wasn't going to come out for everything. Or he wasn't coming out for anything. He was hitting 100 miles an hour, and I mean, he was lights out. Three consecutive games on two days rest. Now, he was supposed to start the next game, so he was supposed to start game four. Obviously, that didn't happen. So this guy wasn't prepared to pitch, but when they called his name, he's like, yo, let's get it done. And that's what he did. Now, on top of that, he gave everything he had in this 2018 postseason. And when the 2018 season ended, he was a free agent. He could have just mailed it in and been like, hey, I'm not fresh enough to do it because... If you put yourself in a situation like that, it's sort of like what Matt Harvey did in 2015 for the Mets. You know, you just pitch yourself so much, you pitch yourself into further injury. And this is a guy who's already had two Tommy John surgeries, so he could have easily been like, I don't have anything left, manager. I cannot go out there and pitch. But he didn't care. Going into a free agent offseason, he didn't care. He still chose to give it all for his team. And put it all on the line. And like I said, I think he was just going to pitch forever. But when the season ended, he was definitely affected. So the Red Sox won the World Series in 2018. Nathan Valdi in 2019 threw to like nearly a six ERA. He was absolutely gassed. So that toll, he was putting it all on the line. And it affected him physically. Now, he had a great season, a good season this past season in 2021. But it didn't really matter because the Red Sox saw that effort and they signed him to like a four-year contract. And when they called him to sign the contract, listen to this. So in the, in the 2018 offseason, coming off the World Series, 
this amazing World Series performance, Game 3 relief. The Red Sox called Nate, and they're like, hey, man, we're going to sign you to a four-year contract. And they were like, what are you doing? And Nathan was on top of his house hanging up Christmas lights. And his agent's like, listen, get someone else to do the fucking lights, man. We got you a 10-year, like, or a four-year, 40-something million dollar contract right here. And that's Evaldi, man. He goes, pitches all these innings of relief, wins a World Series. He's a hero for the team. And he gets home and just starts hanging Christmas lights. And I'm just like, that's just a normal dude. But we'll we'll close that up right there, you know. So Nathan Valdi's number, he's the first guy that I'm talking about on this list because just a gritty dude gave it all when he didn't have to, and he could have cost himself a lot of money. But you know, you like to see guys give it all, you know, sort of like you know what a guy like Ray Fossey did, where it's like, you know, you you miss out on a lot of money because physically you just give it all for your team. And I think there's a lot to be said of that, you know, to watch, like I said, you know, watch these guys push themselves to you know, these uncomfortable positions physically, you know, for the betterment of their team. And I think that's it's a pretty honorable thing. And it's a it's a really cool thing that Valdi did. All right. So number two, that's a number two on my list. Kyle Tucker of the Houston Astros. You might not like this if you hate the Astros, but Kyle Tucker wasn't there when they were swiping signs. So give me a break here. But Kyle Tucker is a no batting glove kind of guy, just right up there with Mark Grace, Keith Hernandez, Moises Alou, who pees on his hands to make his hands stronger. That's what Alou did. He said Moises Alou wouldn't wear batting gloves, and he would pee on his hands because it would make his hands tougher. And so that was his thing, right? He didn't need Franklin batting gloves. He just needed to piss on them. And who else didn't wear batting gloves? Vlad Guerrero, no batting gloves. George Brett, no batting gloves, man. That's just the thing about it. But also, like, Kyle Tucker, I, I really didn't I didn't watch any Astros baseball this season. But guy's a damn good hitter. Watch him during the postseason. Like, you could watch him hit. And what everybody says about Kyle Tucker is he's just a natural hitter. He batted 294 on the season, but that was only because of a slow start. Since May 1st, he led the league in hitting. Batted 320 since May 1st, led the whole entire league in hitting. And ended up hitting 30 home runs on the year, too, which is stellar. So this is a guy that can bat 320 over a stretch. And he's got power, and he doesn't wear batting gloves, you know? Just grab some dirt, spit on your hands, rub it up, and you're good. You know, that's what he does. He got the calluses, you know, get them hands a little bloody. And that's what I like about Kyle Tucker because this is a, you know, this is a no-batting average type guy. You know, he doesn't strike out a lot. And he's just a good guy to watch hit. When you watch Kyle Tucker hit, you'd think it was 1986, man. It's a great thing. So Kyle's uh, number two on my list. The next guy on my list is Jose Abreu. Now, maybe I should have named Jose Abreu first on my list because this guy is gritty as all hell. First and foremost, he covers his helmet in an absolutely stunning layer of pine tar and he cakes the pine tar on his bat which is what you gotta like if you're gonna be a gritty ball player you need the pine tar to do it two he gets hit a lot just by pitching they pitch him inside he gets hit a lot but he doesn't wear an elbow guard he doesn't wear a pad he just takes the hit on the arm and takes his base and he just stands in the box. He doesn't care. He's sort of like Don Baylor. He's like, you want to hit me? You got the balls to pitch inside. Hit me. Well, he got hit a lot. I think more than anybody in the league. But he doesn't pad up. Doesn't really care. He actually, one time, Jose Abreu took a 96-mile-an-hour fastball to the head. You know what he did? He got up and took first base. I'm like, holy shit, man. That, that right there, that's a gritty dude. Uh, but also, five of his, he's played in seven 
full seasons Jose Abreu has. So he's a Cuban guy, and so he didn't get over here until he was a little older. I think his first season in Major League Baseball, he was like 26 or something. Five of his seven full seasons, he's been a 30-home run, 100-RBI guy. Damn, man, that's what you want. There's nothing more classic than 30 homers, 100 ribbies, right? Also, this is this is the best part of Jose Abreu's grit is – so when he came over from Cuba, he's sort of like Yasiel Puig. They had to, he had to really be like smuggled in. So he basically ran away from Cuba, took a boat from Cuba to, I think, like the Dominican, and then took a plane from the Dominican to the U.S. Now, to get on the plane in the Dominican, I think, it may have been Cancun. I don't remember. Don't hold me to it. But at one point in his journey from Cuba to escape Cuba so he could come to America, he had a fake passport made and boarded a plane to fly to the U.S. Now, what happens is if you get on the plane to go to the U.S., when you land in the United States, if you don't have a passport or they don't find a fake passport on you, they won't send you back. So you'll just be here. The U.S. will say, you can stay. We don't know how you got here, but we'll let it, we'll let it slide. And so what Jose Abreu did, as soon as his plane is in the air, he ate his passport ate his passport because he had to get rid of the passport. Well, when you're in the air, you can't flush your passport. I mean, you could, but it would still be on the plane. So he got like three or four Heinekens and just slugged the Heinekens and ate his passport. And then so when he landed in the U.S., he didn't have a passport. He got to stay, apply for citizenship. And, you know, he is the 30 home run, 100 RBI guy that we know. But eating your passport and taking 96 to the head, you can't beat that, dude. Jose Abreu's definitely a gritty guy. Number, dude, the next guy I'll name on my list, let's do Pete Alonso. Okay, Pete Alonso, first and foremost, he's making the home run derby fun. In the era of baseball that we're in, a lot of big names, they don't like to compete in the home run derby, right? When we were all kids, Griffey Jr., hell, he compete every year. Frank Thomas, he compete every year. Like, the big names would always compete in the Home Run Derby, but now they don't do it. And I don't know why, but they just won't. To get Bryce Harper to do it, he doesn't want to do it. He's only done two of them. Aaron Judge and Stanton, I don't know if they were hurt because they're always hurt, but they didn't want to do it. Vlad Jr. didn't do it. Tatis Jr. didn't do it. So it's like you got all these big names that just aren't doing the Home Run Derby and either because I don't know why they don't want to do it. Maybe they think it's going to mess up their swing or they think like, oh, I'm like, it's going to hurt my star power if I don't win the Home Run Derby. But listen, Pete Alonso, he's won back-to-back home run derbies, and he makes the home run derby fun. He's not afraid to lose. I actually don't know if he can lose because he hits absolute scuds everywhere he goes. But Pete Alonso is built like a dad who works construction. He's just he's built like a, a polar bear, just a big husky dude. He looks like he wakes up at 4:30 a.m. every day, watches the weather channel local on the eights. Drinks Maxwell House and Bushlight out of camo cans, man, and talks gas mileage with his buddies on a daily basis. Like Pete Alonso is the working man's ball player because he looks just like me and you, you know? But he's got a little bit of husk on him and he can hit a 500 football. And dude, like Pete Alonso looks like the type of guy where if you turned around in his driveway, he would like stare you down and be like, What the hell are you doing in my driveway, son? Like that's Pete. But man, the way 
He's so pumped to compete in the Home Run Derby every single year, and he's the best at it. And he takes it serious, which I sort of like because all these other big names, it's like, yeah, they're afraid to do it maybe because they think it's going to hurt their star power. But Pete Alonso, dude, tough, gritty dude, doesn't give a shit. And he's the working man's ball player, man, hands down. Okay, the last guy I'm going to name is Tyler O'Neill of the St. Louis Cardinals, right? He is coming off uh, back-to-back gold gloves, 2020-2021 gold glove. Now, the thing I like about Tyler O'Neill is he is aggressive at the plate. He has no interest in walking. He's like Kevin Mitchell. One time Kevin Mitchell said, listen, walks are for the postman. I'm up here to hit bombs. And that's sort of what Tyler O'Neill does. So, he didn't walk a lot and he struck out a lot, but still managed to keep like a 290 batting average and a 356 on base percentage. So it's like he's striking out a lot, but he's efficient with his at bats. End up having like a five and a half war on the season. And listen, this past season, Tyler O'Neill, he hit 30 home runs. I don't know if he got to 100 RBIs, but he stole like 20 or 22 bases or something like that. So you got a guy that. He's like Rob Deere. He's not afraid to strike out, but he's a better hitter than Rob Deere. He just wants to hit the ball hard as shit. He looks for anything in his wheelhouse and just swings out of his shoes. He's a huge dude, but he's also a gold glove defender and one of the fastest guys in the league. So the reason why I like Tyler O'Neill as a gritty player is because he's just a ball player. He's not one-dimensional. He can hit for power. He can he can catch. He can play center field. The whole outfield really, really well. And he's one of the fastest guys in the league. He's like a new age Gorman Thomas. You know, he like takes showers and cuts his hair and probably doesn't drink as many Miller Lights as what Gorman Thomas did. But like Gorman Thomas was a great defender and a great home run hitter. And Tyler O'Neill sort of elevates that. Like when I look at Tyler O'Neill, I'm like, he's a little Bo Jackson-esque. Like the season that Tyler O'Neill just had was better than Bo Jackson's best offensive season, which was like in 1990. Now, I'm not saying that Tyler O'Neill's a better athlete than what Bo Jackson was, but he reminds me of Bo Jackson because he's got the muscularity like Bo. He's got the power that Bo Jackson has. Tyler O'Neill can hit a baseball over 400 feet off a tee. That is not an easy thing to do. But also, he's one of the fastest guys in the league. So when I look at Tyler play, and I love to watch him play because he's like guys like, you know, Gorman Thomas. Gorman didn't have the speed that Tyler has, but like, you know, he's a little Eric Davis right here. You got a guy like Tyler who could be a 30-30 guy every season. Hell, he could be a 40-40 guy if he was in a position to do so, but where he's at in the lineup and the way the Cardinals are set up, Tyler's never going to steal a ton of bases, but he can do it, and he's efficient when he needs to, and the guy can play the field. So uh, Tyler O'Neill's that dude, man. He's a hell of a gritty ball player. It's so fun to watch. All right, that's it. I'm done with the podcast. I got to catch my breath because I've talked a really lot. It's, what is it, about 10 o'clock my time? I'm about to go pound some cherry Pop-Tarts, do some dry hacks in the front yard, and take a piss in the bushes. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I'm going to try to get one up maybe in a week or so. I'm going to I'm gonna do it often. You know, these are fun to do when I get into it. And plus, it's the off season, so we sort of got to entertain ourselves because we don't have any baseball to watch. So you'll have me to burn some time until spring training comes, which it'll come sooner than we think. But otherwise, again, thanks for listening. And that's all I got to say. I appreciate it. And until next time, uh, have a phenomenal week. And we'll talk baseball soon. Right on. Thanks, guys. Take care.